Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Camilla Kong and Alex Rutkeen about their book, Overcoming Challenges in the Mental Capacity Act 2005, Practical Guidance for Working with Complex Issues. It's published by Jessica Kingsley Publishers in 2019. Now, just before we get started, I want to introduce our guest to you. Uh, our first guest today is Dr. Camilla Kong. She's a senior research fellow at the Institute for Crime and Justice Policy Research at Birkbeck University of London. She's a moral and political philosopher with research expertise on medico-legal conceptualization of mental capacity, the ethics of psychiatry and psychiatric genomics, and the hermeneutics of phrenology of mental disorder. Alex Rutkeen is an experienced barrister at 39 Essex Chambers. He's also a writer and educator. His practice is focused on mental capacity and mental health law. He writes extensively in the field, including publishing the 39 Essex Chambers Mental Capacity Report. And he holds a number of prestigious academic roles and is the creator of the website, Mental Capacity Law and Policy. As I mentioned, today we're here to talk about their book, Overcoming Challenges in the Mental Capacity Act 2005. Camilla and Alex, welcome to the show. Now, just to get us started, I'm wondering if you can both tell me a little bit about yourselves and how you came to write the book. Perhaps, Camilla, you can uh, get us started on that. Thank you, Jane, and thank you for having us. Um, so the the book really um, developed out of a more academic book that I wrote as a result of my British Academy postdoctoral fellowship. Um, and it was a book called Mental Capacity and Relationship that was published um, with Cambridge University Press. And in that, I really looked at the kind of philosophical and conceptual issues around how we support individuals in making decisions um, for them and um, in enabling them to make decisions um, for themselves as well. And just looking at the kind of relational dimensions of how we facilitate that enablement and empowerment. And, um, and I met Alex at the Supreme Court and he, um, you know, through our, our various interactions, he read and commented very kindly on that more academic book. And he um, suggested uh, perhaps translating this um, academic book into one that is more um, 
accessible to social care practitioners and practitioners who might be interested in how they might improve practice. So that is really how the book evolved and how we um, started to collaborate on that. Right, and Alex, did you want to add anything to that, perhaps? Um, you can tell me about yourself and how you work together. Sure, sure. So uh, as your intro says, I'm a barrister, a practicing barrister in London. Um, and I already started to get the sense that the thing about the Mental Capacity Act, which I suspect we'll come on to talk a bit about in a bit more detail, is it's a piece of legislation where every single word in it actually has a massive unthought about by most people, kind of philosophical slash ethical underpinning. And so uh, uh, whilst in practice, I also do academic work as well. And having met Camilla, as, as she says, at the back of the Supreme Court during a hearing, we got we got talking. And then I, I as she says, I, I commented on, on her book um, and I think while it was in draft. And it struck me as it was it was saying such profound and interesting and challenging and, and sort of generally excellent things about really the kind of the ethical philosophical underpinning of so much of what goes on in the Mental Capacity Act. But it also struck me that it was a book which many people who actually have to apply it in practice just would think, well, this isn't for me. This feels like an academic book. I don't see how this relates to, to my work, which would be at one level a kind of a practical tragedy, if you see what I mean. Uh, and Camilla very graciously agreed when I rather cheekily suggested that we'd sort of translate it together. Um, she very graciously agreed for us to do that. And so we were sort of sat down and, and worked on it together. I mean, and one of the things we were very keen to work on, and I think, I think it's worked, but one of the things that we were really trying to do was to make sure that it was a book which, a bit like an iceberg, so that although it's, it's supposed to be framed in quite kind of straightforward terms, I mean, I'm a lawyer, so I'm not entirely straightforward, but framed in relatively straightforward terms. Everything which has been said has really got the underpinnings of the, the, the work that Camellia did and, and the insights that she had into the kind of the relational autonomy aspect in particular and the ways in which people can be enabled or disabled. Um, so it was always backed up by what was the sort of underpinning work and, and at the back there's the, as a defense to be, if you want to know more, this is where you can go. So, I mean, it was a very much a collaborative effort, but really I can't actually emphasise enough the kind of intellectual horsepower underpinning it all so much comes from Camellia. And that really came through in the book. That was actually one of my favourite things, all the ethical and philosophical underpinnings, but it was really translated in a really practical and meaningful way for practitioners and students and everyone who works in this area. So um, I found it to be really accessible, but it didn't sort of skim over or gloss it didn't leave to your imagination all of these sort of really important ethical underpinnings that really drive this legislation um, or perhaps are not captured by the legislation. So I just guess just to provide a bit of brief context, can you perhaps, Alex, give a brief overview of the legal landscape in the UK, especially with mental with relation to mental capacity? Sure. So and I think the first thing just to understand for people who don't know the UK legally is it's actually, uh, it's a jurisdiction which has got several different systems of law relating to mental capacity because the law in England and Wales isn't the same as the law in Scotland and it isn't the same as the law in Northern Ireland. Our book's located within the Mental Capacity Act, which is the law in England and Wales. And I think it's, it, it, it's sort of just to break it down very briefly, 
it depends on an idea of decision-specific uh, capacity, mental capacity, uh, applying a functional test, which is uh, fairly standard for most late 20th century uh, uh, sort of legislative efforts here. In other words, it's not a status. You don't have a status of lacking capacity. The, the test is meant to be, can you make this decision at this point in time? In other words, can you understand, retain, use, and weigh the information you need in order to be able to make the decision? Um, and then if you can do that, can you communicate your decision? And uh, if you can't make that decision, uh, it, then there's a framework which enables uh, decisions to be taken and actions to be taken, uh, which is based on the concept of best interest. I would just say, if anyone's familiar with from, from with the, well, what they think they're familiar with, the idea of best interests from a different jurisdiction or as it relates to children, or it, it's important to understand that it's not necessarily how, it, how that term is then interpreted in England and Wales. Uh, I think without being too kind of starry-eyed about it, that the, the, the paradigm idea of best interests in England and Wales in terms of how it's supposed to be applied, whether it's, and whether it's always done, is, is different. It is a different point, but the idea is it's it's a it's a an, a an approach which has a pretty hefty slug of substituted judgment. So, in other words, the starting point is trying to work out what decisions the person themselves would have made, and then making it if you can. It's it's ultimately an objective test. So it might be that you could work out what the person would have done, but objectively, everybody else thinks it's just too dangerous to say. So there's capacity best interests. And then I think the other thing, just to sort of frame it for people, and one of the reasons why I was really keen to, to, to try and, as it were, translate the book that Camilla wrote into practice, is that 99.99% of decisions made and actions taken in relation to people with impaired decision-making capacity in England and Wales are made without going through formal procedures, for instance, going to court and getting somebody appointed to be a deputy or a guardian or some of the other mechanisms which they used in other countries, including, interestingly, in Scotland. They've got a very different idea in Scotland, which is much more about you are never allowed to do things in relation to someone with impaired decision-making capacity without a court having appointed you to do it. But because so much of what's done, especially in relation to acts of care and treatment, are done by people applying the act on the basis of what they reasonably believe about the person's decision-making capacity and what they reasonably believe is in the person's best interests, it seemed to me just incredibly important to try and help people think through, well, what does that actually mean? I know what the law's telling me, but can I have some kind of moral compass underpinning this? And it's that moral compass aspect, which I think Camilla just, just really nailed so brilliantly in, in her book. And I wanted to try and help kind of bring through into the book that we then have written together. Perhaps you can comment a little bit, uh, Camilla, on this sort of moral compass aspect, because you do really in the book... Um, give due consideration to these sort of ethical aspects, um, notwithstanding that, you know, it's a it's a formal piece of legislation and it's got limits um, and that sort of thing. Um, but you do give really helpful suggestions in terms of how people and um, workers in this area can sort of be guided by a moral compass and what that actually should look like. So what then do you see as the key challenges, Camilla, for practitioners working with the Mental Capacity Act? I think in the first instance, is to be comfortable with complexity and the and and the nature of the cases. You know, in a sense that there is a an inherent indeterminacy around these cases, and um, I think people want to have a clear 
vector in terms of what ought to be done, you know, if we have a best interest framework or what, 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 what do we do in this particular case? And it's very difficult and they want a right answer. And I think that the real challenge for practitioners is to feel comfortable with the fact that there might not be a very, very clear vector um, and being comfortable that, um, in fact, there are various facets that one can go through and dimensions of decision making that could enhance the the ethical framing and grounding of one's decisions. Um, And that is really to do with the kind of um, interpersonal dimension about one's own position in and reflection about one's position, about the power imbalance that one occupies in in relation to the person with impaired decision-making and being reflective about that. I think it's, um, so I think it's really trying to think about one's own position, one's own values framework, one's values-based framework. We all start from, uh, we, we don't start from nowhere. We all have a position. We all start with certain prejudgments. We all start with certain values. And that's not a bad thing. These can be operationalized in ways that are constructive and that can be um, ethical, but it's being reflective about them and also thinking through how are these values being operationalized in my approach to a person um, that I might be doing a capacity assessment or where I have to make a best interest decision. That's what I, I, so I think it's really being comfortable with the idea that there is complexity, that one starts with a certain position and that that complexity might mean it's, you know, the values that one promotes in this, in this context is not reducible to just autonomy versus paternalism. There's a, there's a great, um, gray area in between those two poles. And we do a great injustice when we don't actually recognize the, the, the vast array of values that are productive and that are important in order to make ethical decisions in this context. Now, I want to come back to that point about the ethical role of capacity and best interests assessor a bit later on. But just because you mentioned this concept of autonomy and how it is sort of captured in the legislation, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about this ideal of autonomy and perhaps how it is um, sort of embodied in the Mental Capacity Act. Um, Perhaps, Alex, you could um, tell us about that. Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say is it it isn't actually formally embodied at all. And actually one of the reasons why um, it's so important, as Camellia says, then to grapple with the kind of complexity of this business is that because it's not there, and actually there's a very, there's a sort of a real lack of actual understanding or agreed consensus amongst people applying the MCA as to what exactly they mean by autonomy. It can encompass two totally and utterly completely different things as far as I see it. One is a very thin version of autonomy, which is basically you're right just what, just accepting your no. So in other words, it's simply the right just to say, go away, I don't want you to do something. And you can see that has panned out in, you can see that partly because of the way in which the act was brought in and promoted very much as a tool for empowerment and a tool for saying, this is about autonomy, that was very much pushed. And I think it's sort of important to locate this historically, that was very much pushed against a backdrop of people forever having, you know, somebody with an intellectual disability or learning disability, as it said in England, 
having doctors saying, I want to do this to you because this seems like the right thing. And the person saying, I don't want that. And the doctor saying, well, I don't care. And I, and then potentially, for instance, I mean, bluntly, that's how it is perceived. And that's sometimes quite often being framed on the basis that you're making a decision I don't want you to make. That means you don't have capacity to make it. That means I can go off and make the decision that I think you should have made. And so there was this huge push to say, under no, that, that just sh simply shouldn't be allowed. So there's the presumption of capacity in the Mental Capacity Act, and there's the so-called right to make unwise decisions, which in fact isn't what the Act says. It says, I just can't say you lack capacity to make a decision just because your decision's unwise. And so we've had this big push, and we've actually seen it pan out in some ways extremely badly, this really thin idea of autonomy. In other words, I'm saying no, somebody else has to respect and then there's a much bigger idea of autonomy lurking underneath, which is much more edgy to grapple with. And one of the things I was, I think the book really provokes people, and I think rightly, if I may say so, provokes people, is to be saying, sometimes that's just not, that's just inadequate. Because actually, if someone's saying no in circumstances what's, where what's really going on is they don't have capacity to say, to make that decision or they haven't been provided with the support to be able to make that decision, or you're, you, in fact, as the person doing the assessing, are actively disabling from making that decision, that their true autonomy, in other words, what's really important to them, their real, their real good, is being completely outweighed by the fact that people are taking their first no. And it's that bigger version of autonomy and the tension between the, the, the thin version and the thick version of autonomy. Camellia will frame this in infinitely better language than I can, but it's that tension between thin and thick autonomy, which isn't actually spelt out in the act, and which over 15 years of it being implemented, you can actually see the pendulum swing swings backwards and forwards. And in circumstances where there's a very strong idea of thin autonomy, we've actually seen really, really bad things happen. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to come across as some ghastly old paternalistic dinosaur saying, please just don't accept people with intellectual disability have the right to make their own decisions. It's that actually, if people don't dig into, does this person really have the ability to make the decision that they would wish to, we've walked away too often. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. And this sort of complexity of what autonomy actually means really does come through in the book. Um, you write about the fact that circumstances really matter, um, you know, and one of the key themes in the book is that a person's cognitive abilities and the subsequent decision-making capacities should not be divorced from their circumstances. Now, in this context, you write a lot about the idea of relational autonomy. Can you perhaps talk more, uh, Camilla, about this concept of relational autonomy and what, what is it and how does it shape the MCA, uh, especially building on what Alex just said? I, I think Alex's description of the historical genealogy is um, brilliant and, it, you know, contrary to his views that I wouldn't actually think that the language is, is overly simplistic. Um, and the, but but the, the concept of relational autonomy is really, you know, based on a very simple idea that emerges um, primarily in feminist philosophy. And it is the idea that um, individuals are in relationship and that we are socialized, we are um, beings who, who are in, you know, constant relationship and intersubjective dialogue. 
And um, and the you know what what the what feminism really does is it explores how autonomy can go bad in some ways, you know, in a sense that we idealize this notion of autonomy as individual self-determination and where our subjective wishes prevail. But in fact, what we need to interrogate is about how one actually has developed one's preferences and why that matters in the context of feminism, for example, is precisely because there is um, the, the issue of patriarchal socialization. And in order to understand uh, the oppressive roots to one's preferences and one's um, wishes or um, one's um, higher order um, values, it ultimately you have to explore how one has become socialized. And I think that that concept of relational autonomy has become very important in the context of disability, primarily because it doesn't divorce individuals from their bodies it doesn't actually idealize autonomy as something that is in purely in one's head, that it is about expressing cognitive um, wishes and thinking things through. And that's the, the danger of having a, an overly individualistic account of autonomy, which is suggesting that, well, I just think things through in isolation and my role is just to express it and your role is just to, to respect my expressed wishes. Um, and that's a very simplistic way of, of depicting the dis, dis, distinction between a kind of more individualistic account of autonomy and a more relational account of autonomy. But relational autonomy, in essence, is exploring how not only do we, how, how have we developed our certain preferences, our values, but also how do we enable one's authentic wishes you know so how what, what kind what are the constituents that are required to make decisions that are authentically mine and um and it's recognizing that as individuals embodied in relationships that it is always going to be a dialogical process it's always going to be one where we're in conversation with people it's always going to be one where um we are influenced by um, our society around us, uh, around us, our relationships around us, our family members, um, etc. And th that kind of community is an important part of the picture of autonomy. If we're trying to understand how autonomy is is idealized, we have to recognize we are in community, and our communities have a role and obligation to somehow facilitate our our ability to make authentic decisions. Right. And so in terms of protecting autonomy, um, Camilla, I'm wondering if you can add uh, with regards to sort of the ethical considerations of when it might be appropriate to intervene. When is legislative intervention appropriate to intervene to protect autonomy? And perhaps, Alex, you can add about the practical implications. So, I mean, I, I think that I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. I think that you can see instances where there has been an ethical basis for intervention. One of the wonderful cases that I always refer to is uh, the Mr. and Mrs. A case, um, which explores how th there is a particular judge trying to determine whether this woman with learning disability had um, capacity to, to refuse contraceptive 
um, treatment. And, um, and what is remarkable is about how he was very attuned to the dynamics of the relationship between her husband and her, and that there was a particular power dynamic. Um, and, particular, and, and there might have been an element of coercion, etc. But he also was attuned to the value of that relationship to, to Mrs. A. And so I think that there is no hard and fast rule, but it is a, what we try to do in the book is to give some indication as to when, when there, are, there is an ethical basis for intervention. And that's really about the kind of narratives that surround an individual, um, you know, trying to determine whether that, you know, the expressed wishes are authentically a, a person's um, based on coercive relationships or um, situations of abuse. Alex, I don't know if you want to add anything here. Yeah, actually, I'm really glad you mentioned the, the Mr. and Mrs. A case, because I remember vividly you and I having quite extensive debates about it whilst you were writing your, your original book. Um, and one of the things which is interesting about that case, uh, and one of the things I remember sort of we, we were discussing is framed purely through the prism of the Mental Capacity Act. At one level, it's quite a challenging decision because the judge doesn't necessarily get to grips with, is Mrs. A unable to make the decision about contraception because she has a learning disability, which is meaning she can't, for instance, understand slash use and weigh the relevant information, or is it because the influence of her husband so that you know the very strong influence which you've identified. So one of the things when when you were writing your original book, I was saying is that just that that case kind of at one level sits quite weirdly within the mental capacity act. But one of the things I think we then did, and I, I the, in the book we wrote together, is at one level is a, a sort of start to explain actually that's not an it, it's there is a coherent way in which you can approach the idea of um, capacity in an embedded relationship or capacity in, 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 in relationship here, so mental capacity in relationship, through the prism of the Mental Capacity Act, where our Mental Capacity Act says, English Mental Capacity Act says, you have to be, a, the reason why you're said to not be able to make the decision has to be down to an impairment or disturbance in the functioning of your mind or brain. Well, how does that work if you're trying to disentangle is it down to somebody else or is it down to, as it were, there's, there's a problem located within you? And one of the things the book does, and it builds on this uh, a, a, a interesting case from Singapore, from the Singapore Court of Appeal called BKR, because the Singaporean Mental Capacity Act basically looks identical to the English and Welsh Mental Capacity Act, but located in a culture which really stereotypically might be perceived to me more, more open or more embedded in the idea that actually people aren't just single units than the, than, the, than the kind of philosophical legal culture in England and Wales. And the Singaporean Court of Appeal looks at a situation where you have, a, you have an elderly woman, uh, an older woman, very rich older woman, who has the beginning stages of dementia and frankly ghastly family. And the question is, does she have the ability to make the decision about um, who manages her money? And, and the Court of Appeal in Singapore looks across the English case law and actually, at one level, completely misinterprets the English case law, but at another level says something quite sophisticated, which is to bring home exactly what Camellia said, just in, in, in judicial terms. In other words, it's ludicrous to imagine Mrs. BKR 
out of her context. You can't just abstract her and pretend she, her ghastly family doesn't exist and ask, can she understand, use and weigh the relevant information? You have to take her in that context. And the Singaporean Court of Appeals says, and, and we suggest in the book, I mean, I push and Camilla, I think, I hope agrees, because that's what we end up saying in the book, to say it's actually, it's, it's legally coherent to say in a situation there where you've got the interaction between someone with a very strong set of either one person or several people around them and some form of impairment, one of the things you are allowed, one of the things which can happen is that it's legitimate to say this individual, in fact, for instance, doesn't have capacity to make the decision whether to have contact with the person who in some way seems to be exploiting. Because, for instance, they can't process the fact that this individual may not have interests aligned with them. But this is a super important example of where the law says you could. We can tell a coherent, legally coherent story there to find the individual to lack capacity. But this is the point which I was really keen to emphasize in the book, and in the book Camilla and I wrote together, which is that carries with it the most enormous ethical corollary. Because on one level, and what it's been really interesting talking to social workers about the book, because they feel very challenged at one level by having a menu or a, a set of tools for saying, you can find more people to lack capacity to make decisions. Um, but they recognize that the book is also telling you, you are only ethically allowed to do this if what you're trying to do is try and secure that person's true ability to make their own decisions. And if the framework of the law in England and Wales is the such, we have to kind of get to that through the prism of saying, actually, we think at this point, the person doesn't have capacity to make their own decision. We need to do things in the name of their best interests. Ethically, that is only justified if your approach is to try through the prism of best interests to get the person to the place where they are able to make decisions, which are in as much as we can properly identify their own authentic decisions as opposed to those decisions which other people might want them to take. So it's a rather long answer, Jane, but it's, I think it's important to sort of frame the fact that Camellia's ethical insights translate into a kind of practical menu for, at one level, finding more people to lack capacity to make decisions about, that, about, specific, about particular things, but you're only allowed to use this very strong medicine if you really understand what the label on the bottle says, which is, please only use this for good as opposed to go around doing whatever it is you feel like you think is the right thing to do. Yeah, and I think uh, just from what you're saying, this really, there's this real tension and um, there's a complexity in sort of working out um, when autonomy is something that's a sort of a hands-off that assessors um, and supporters should take a hands-off approach or whether, you know, intervention is ethically justified. And I also think, um, and you write a bit about this in the book, with regard, this tension plays out with regards to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and especially in relation to Article 12.3 of the CRPD. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about the CRPD for a moment. Um, in the book, you write that denying the differences that arise from impairments, which cannot be removed even with appropriate social support, risks leaving individuals with such impairments in situations that are ethically unjustified. We also think that taking this approach ignores the fact that an equally important obligation contained in the CRPD placed on states is to secure protection for persons with disabilities, both within and outside the home, from all forms of exploitation, violence and abuse. 
including the gender-based aspects. Now, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about these tensions in the CRPD and also how it plays out in the Mental Capacity Act framework. Um, perhaps, Alex, you can talk about this. Oh, okay. I was actually thinking Camellia. Oh, sorry, Camellia, go ahead. I <laughs> know <laughs> I might give some thoughts of my own, but I'll be okay. thoughts, actually. Um, so I, I, for myself, I see a real tension, the way that um, the CRPD in Article 12 has been in interpreted and the way that it is meant to um, promote this kind of supported decision-making framework. Because it seems to me that if we kind of prioritize, um, you know, express wishes and feelings, and that's the kind of end of the story, that the, the, the kind of subjective expression of one's preferences is all that there is, um, it does not sit well with the obligations of support and positive supports that are required um, to actually facilitate the kind of expression of wishes and feelings and the development of autonomy. So I think that for, me, for myself, I see that, um, and, and I think that we write this also in the book, and I think Alex and I are kind of on the same page here, um, is you know, trying to highlight that there are these tensions in the CRPD and particularly in the, um, the committee interpretation of, the, of Article 12, um, where it's somehow any substituted decision-making is, is, is unwarranted and ethically unwarranted. But if we really actually have a more embodied and relational account of autonomy, which I think a supported decision-making framework is meant to um, meant to promote, then we actually have to problematize the more subjective interpretations of Article 12, um, which, you know, and, and where it is the case that, you know, in order to protect individuals from coercive situations of abuse, um, one has to recognize that interventions might be required. But I also think that there is a deeper tension in, in the way that the CRPD is framed. And this is not to say that I, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I think it's important. It's an important legal vector and also an ethical vector for, for um, practitioners and uh, in this field, primarily because so much paternalism and abuse has gone the opposite direction of state and where it's been state sanctioned. But um, the real an, an attention that I think is, is we need to recognize is that when we think about the way that rights can be framed, and it's also very, it can be clumsily applied in saying that, well, it applies to all individuals, we treat all individuals equally, and therefore it means equal, that equal treatment means same treatment. But in the context of disability, I think that, and, and if we take embodiment seriously, it means that we, that, that idea of equal treatment means same treatment is not, it, it does not apply. One has to actually recognize the nature of one's embodiment, one's, the nature of certain impairments in order to actually treat people equally. And, and that might mean recognizing certain limitations, that might be recognizing certain vulnerabilities. I think that it's just really important to recognize in the context of the CRPD. And so then can you talk a little just about the ethical role of the capacity and best interest assessor? Um, and perhaps some ways that the ethical assessment can go wrong. Perhaps, Alex, do you want to um, talk a bit about this? Sure, sure. Although actually, I just want to add one thing in relation yeah. to the CRPD or the interpretation of the CRPD. 
Uh, and I think, uh, as Camellia does, I'm always very careful to distinguish between what the CRPD itself says and what other people have said it says, if you see what I mean. Um, and I think it's also, I would I, I reflect on the fact that I'm not 100% sure that the current constitution of this, the committee on the rights of C the CRPD necessarily take exactly the same view on it as the committee which uh, drafted general comment one. But I think what's really ironic, there's a deep lurking irony at the, in, in this, which is the CRPD at root is possibly the most relational treaty ever passed. In other words, it is completely founded on the idea that you only have the, uh, uh, the result or what is seen as disability is entirely the, the, the model, almost entirely down to the interaction between the individual with impairment or the impairment of the individual and society's failure to respond. And so that's about as relational as you get. But then you have Article 12 CRPD, which, which is incredibly important talking about the equal rights to legal capacity, which is then interpreted by, um, or interpreted to be almost the most individualistic way you could possibly ever approach something. And that's linked to also to, for instance, the, the way in which the committee has to date approached things like Article 17. Um, and Article 25, based on this incredibly atomistic idea of um, informed consent to any form of intervention, of everybody must always take the will and preferences of the person without ever doing anything at one level. Your only job is to get the person to say what they want, and then you follow it. And that is, it's, there's a sort of deep lurking irony that that becomes incredibly atomistic. And taken to its extreme, uh, it, it runs very, very much up into, you just take the person's no, you don't do anything, and the person dies. And I think one of the problems is that Article 12 CRPD does not talk about uh, will and preferences alone. It talks about rights, will and preferences. And for instance, the rights in Article 12, it, 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 the rights in the CRPD include not only, as we mentioned in the book, Article 16, the right to be protected with an obligation on states to protect against exploitation, violence and abuse. It also includes Article 10, the right to life, which is not just states murdering people with disabilities. It is also, and, and the committee are weirdly silent to the, on this to date, about the positive obligation. Well, what positive obligations are there on states to secure the right to life of persons with disabilities? How does that pan out when a person is saying no? So I think it's because there's been an, an, an it's, a, it's actually, weirdly, it's at a kind of international level, almost exactly the same thing I've, I was giving in terms of the historical exegesis of the Mental Capacity Act. The idea that to push against this incredibly long shadow of people with impairments just being told to do what doctors think they should do, um, that pendulum has been pushed so hard and the message in the CRPD committee and those and particularly it's actually people around them more than the committee saying you must always take um, the first no and it's illegitimate it's unethical to do anything else and, and for my sake I am very happy to say I think that ends up in a place which is just in unethical so so that was to just to sort of piggyback on what Camilla said but in terms of just very quickly, because I really want to make sure I've handed back to Camilla, in terms of the ethical role of the, uh, the capacity assessor and best interest assessor, 
I think the single biggest thing, and it's the bit I always like mentioning most when I'm talking about this with, with people who do this as a job because they're told to do it, is saying, recognize you, you yourself are part of this relationship. You yourself are enabling or disabling the person. It's not just there are other people around them, for instance, overbearing family members or people who might be you know, causing this person harm. You yourself could be doing harm could be doing good and you can only recognize if you're yourself if, you, if you're doing that if you are reflective about why as Camilla said before you know what your own values are why you're coming to this how risk averse are you how risk uh, happy are you and how is that meshing up with how you're engaging with this person because at the end of the day capacity assessment predominantly is, is a conversation it's a relational engagement with the person it's just because it's done quite often by people who are professionals, it's not framed in quite that in quite that way. But that's in reality what's happening. So I'm wondering, Camilla, just to sort of bring it all together, if you could just um, in navigating these very complex waters and getting practitioners comfortable with complexity, as you said before, I loved when you said that. Um, do you have any key takeaways or advice for practitioners in this area? I, I think it. it it's, it's related to what Alex said, and I, I think that um, in the first instance, it is recognizing that the fact that you are doing a capacity assessment, it can itself be an intrusive experience. I think what was, uh, I was particularly struck um, by a recent workshop that we had run about how Practitioners don't recognize that they just think, okay, well, I'm doing this. I need to go and have, I need to meet with the person concerned. Um, and I'll have all this background information about them. I'll have their, their fact sheet and et cetera. And they'll go into the situation and not recognizing that the individual herself might say, well, how do you know all this information about me? How is it that, why do you have all, what, you know, the power imbalance is so significant. And I think just actually even having that rec recognition from the very get-go that this is an intrusive process and I have a duty and obligation to really recognize how, how this might feel for the other person. And how is it the case? What can I do as a practitioner to, to show a certain um, mutuality of certain reciprocity in this process you know because as Alex said it's a relationship um at the end of the day it's not a tick boxing exercise even though that there's a tendency to think about you know a capacity assessment and, and best interest assessment as this and I think that um you know just being really aware and reflective of one's position and one's own values um, is absolutely critical. And it's not actually, you know, considered important, but it, it, I think in the first instance, that has to be one's starting position. And to also recognize, I think if, if I was to think about another takeaway, it would be to recognize that these kinds of skills of, you know, empathy and, dial and, and dialogical skills, these, these are developed through practice. You can't read them in a book. You can't, you know, you can practice them. And they just, they require practice and constant reflection and, and, and a certain humility, I think, at, at the end of the day, about one's own values-based um, perspective and also um, the humility of actually 
bearing witness to someone else's life and their own choices and their own vulnerabilities in um, that we all experience about relationships, about um, impairment, about our bodies um, having having you know having difficulties in our embodiment, um, uh, difficulties in our interactions with others. It's I think just actually having a real humility that you are bearing witness to these kinds of very real, very rich and very complex issues um, is, is absolutely vital. I think, actually, I know you just said that you can't write about developing empathy in a book, but I, I do think that um, probably reading your book, it's as close as you're going to get by reading about it. You know, you've got this, you present really comprehensively this um, legal framework and show how practitioners can be aware and reflective of their own values and how they can and should develop skills of empathy through practice um, and become, you know, develop humility in, um, when they're bearing witness to someone else's life. So I do think um, even though it's not something you can read about um, and sort of absorb it that way, these points really do come through in your book. Um, it was really powerful. So just to sort of bring us to a close, um, the traditional New Books in Law uh, and the New Books Network, last question. Alex, what are you working on next? Um, I am trying, well, I'm juggling a huge number of things, trying to get things up and running or keep things together, uh, supporting people trying to make decisions in the context of the pandemic um, and trying to make sure that we don't entirely lose sight of things like capacity and best interests in the context of things like vaccination. Um, I'm also getting my head round an idea for a book where I want to look at how the law thinks using different body parts to explore some of the stories about those body parts and about how the law thinks. So, for instance, thinking about, you know, just look at hair and how, as a way in which to explain how the law thinks about discrimination. So I'm saying this to you now because I've got to get on with it and actually write it rather than talking about it. So having committed myself to it publicly by talking about it, I, I, that is, that's the next big thing on my horizon um, as opposed to my day job. Well, perhaps we can get you to commit to coming back for an interview when it's published, um, if, if that helps at all. And Camilia, I'm just wondering what you're working on next. So right now, um, I am basically trying to, to write up various things for the project that I lead on. Um, it's called Judging Values and Participation in Mental Capacity Law. So we're really at the exciting phase of that project where we are um, we have various outputs, academic and practical outputs um, related to um, the values and, and that, that contribute to um, how one makes best interests and um, decisions and capacity assessment. Um, but we're also, and Alex is part of this, is that we're part of that is, um, is, is developing a, an international edited volume around um, trying to draw out different cross-jurisdictional comparisons around capacity and how, um, how capacity laws framed the values basis of, of capacity jurisdictions and and how participation is also understood in various jurisdictions. So that is what um, is on the immediate horizon. I think down the line, what I would like to be doing is looking at um, that kind of relational dimensions of attributing intentionality about how in, in real severe cases where um, individuals cannot communicate their wishes and feelings, 
um, how does it, how do, wh- wh- how, how do we actually understand that intersubjective process of attributing that person's intentionality and their agency? And that's some work down the line, hopefully. Well, um, you both sound very busy and Camilia, hopefully we can have you back on the show as well in order to talk about the editor collection that you're working on. Um, now, just to bring us to a close, I'm Jane Richards. This is New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I've been speaking with Dr. Camilia Kong and Alex Rutkeen. They're the authors of Overcoming Challenges in the Mental Capacity Act 2005, Practical Guidance for Working with Complex Issues. Camilia and Alex, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Thank you, Jane.